1 and chapter 2, verses 5 through 8 and 15. And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth, and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth, and to every bird of the heavens, and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. When no bush of the field was yet in the land, and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground, and a mist was going up from the land and was watering the whole face of the ground. Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature." And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. This is the word of the Lord. Would you pray with me? Let's pray. Oh, great creator God, you do all things well. And as we now um, give our attention to your word, we remember that you made all things simply by speaking. And so we pray, oh God, that you would make our hearts, our minds, our lives fertile soil this morning. That we might uh, come to you with uh, reverence and yet with joy, that you might shape us and form us this morning as we think about these words together, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. amen. Good morning. Um, my name is Bryce, I'm the pastor here, if I haven't met you, uh, it's a pleasure to have you here with us this morning. We are... Um, I was realizing as Ashley started reading from the end of Genesis 1, it's a little bit strange when a reading begins with the word and, but uh, we're picking up essentially where we left off last week. We are continuing uh, our series called In the Beginning in the Early Chapters of Genesis, and we're, we're, we're in this series in Genesis in part because we are living through a time where increasingly... Uh, we seem as a people, as collectively, as a culture, as, as individuals, increasingly to be struggling with a sense of meaninglessness. Uh, last year, the Pew Research Center, who regularly reports on these things, issued a report, released a report saying that 25% of the population worldwide says that they have experienced a loss of meaning in their lives, one in four people globally. 
And that problem, the sense of despondency, uh, of I'm not entirely sure why I'm here or where I'm going, and the accompanying mental and emotional struggles um, that that brings seems to be a problem that is uh, heightened in younger people. Uh, A study of college students recently found that 60% of college students reported feeling a sense of meaninglessness in their lives. And so we're looking at Genesis because as Christians, we believe that Genesis isn't only telling us about things that happened a long time ago, though it is doing that, but it is actually our origin story. The origin story of the human race, the origin story of the cosmos, of all that exists. It tells us why we are here, what we are made for, and where we find meaning and purpose in life. It's an origin story. That's what origin stories do. Origin stories tell us about the main characters in a narrative. Uh, They set the context, the world in which the action takes place Origin stories tell us what will be important. They help us understand how an identity is formed and how significance is discovered or otherwise in life. And there are, of course, countless examples of this. And since we're thinking about uh, work this morning, I, I was thinking in terms of the origin stories of, of corporations, organizations. And, of course, we know many of these stories, but when we think about an organization like Apple, you know, we think about a company that makes innovative, cool, uh, sleek electronic products. But if you know the story of Apple, then you know that Apple began... Uh, was, was founded by Steve Jobs and Steve Wozniak in the garage of Steve Jobs' parents. You know, very humble origin story there. Uh, just the other day, one of my sons uh, was asking me about, <laughs> he said, Dad, have you ever in your life been a driver for Uber Eats? <laughs> and I was trying to explain to him that, that Uber Eats or Grubhub was not even possible more than like four years ago. <laughs> And we got into this whole discussion about Amazon.com, and um, there was a time not that long ago when buying something on the internet, like anything on the internet, and it shows up in your do- at your doorstep the next day, would seem like magic. And uh, I remember a time when my girlfriend, who's now my wife, uh, told me about this amazing new website called Amazon.com, which only sold books, but it would do this really amazing thing that was super novel, that if you bought a book, it would suggest to you another book that you might like. (laughs) It's mind-blowing how mind-blowing that is. (laughs) Not that long ago, an algorithm like that, right? But that's part of the the origin story and how we got to where we are now. You might think of a company like Nike, and uh, you think about Nike as this global, like, sportswear French empire, right? And, you know, you don't even need to see the word. You just see the swoosh, and and it means uh, something to us. But... um, if you read about the history of Nike, you will discover that Phil Knight and Bill Bowerman, who I think was the running coach at the University of Oregon, began by selling um, Asics shoes out of the back of uh, Bill Knight's car at track meets. Um, 
That's, that's, how, that's where they began, that's the origin story, right? Origin stories are about more than just communicating events or history. Um, though they do that, or maybe a better way to say that is they communicate events, they tell history in a way that helps uh, under, uh, shape or form an identity. They help us understand why we are here. And so we're living in a time when our world... Um, offers an endless array of things to do and ways to spend our time. And yet many of us are struggling with an increasing sense of meaninglessness. And so we're looking to our origin story, not just the story of an organization, a family, a nation, but the origin story of the human race and the world that we live in. And we've seen so far, as we've looked at this origin story over the last several weeks, we've seen that God created all that exists out of nothing. And we've seen that God used the, the raw materials that he called into existence, and he ordered them, and he shaped them to create a world that is filled with beauty and order. And we saw last week that he created us, human beings, in his image. And so this morning, we turn to the next question, the question of meaning and purpose. Why are we here? What are we meant to do? And the Bible's answer is that we were created for work. And so, um, I didn't plan it like this, but it seems fitting that as you know, kids are going back to school, and that means that many of you who are teachers are going back to work, or professors who will very shortly be going back to work. And even for those of us who don't, you know, vocationally have our lives tied up with education, it seems like the beginning of a school year is kind of this new, this time of new beginning. It seems like an appropriate time to be thinking about after the, uh, the, the lull of summer break and summer vacations, we are re-engaging in our work. And so we're looking at what Genesis teaches us about the nature of our work and what it says is utterly unique. Um, there, there, there is no other world religion, view of life, philosophy that speaks about work in the way that Genesis does. Uh, to a nation of slaves, the people of God, Israel coming out of 400 years of slavery in Egypt, God looks at them and says, you were created to rule over creation. To a nation wrestling with meaninglessness, God says to us, your work has dignity. So let's dive in and let's look at what Genesis 1 tells us, Genesis 1 and 2 tells us about the nature of our work. And the first thing that I think screams at us here is, is that Genesis tells us about the dignity of our work. Genesis tells us that you were created to work. You were made to work. Chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. I was trying to whittle this down. I may not have included this in our reading this morning, but it says this. Thus the heavens and the earth. So Genesis uh, 2 is really, these first verses are really the, um, the summation of all that has been said in chapter 1, where it describes God creating the heavens and the earth. Genesis 2 verse 1 sums it up like this. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished and all the host of them. And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done. And he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy because on it, God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. 
Those three verses just said three times that the almighty creator God of the universe works. I don't know if that strikes you the way that it should, (laughs) but that is utterly unthinkable to almost every other perspective on life the world has ever conjured up. Do you have any idea what a staggeringly unique statement that is? Uh, Genesis tells us three times that God works. There's no other religion, philosophy, view of life, with one huge exception, which is Marxism, that has an inherently positive view of work. Uh, think about this. Eastern religions, generally, you know, we're speaking about many different religions here, but Eastern religions generally emphasize the impermanence and unsatisfactory nature of the physical, the material world, and teach that the material world is an illusion, and that the goal is to escape from materiality into, um, into some immaterial being, uh, oneness kind of thing, I suppose. <laughs> Uh, and so work is maybe necessary for a time, but it's a necessary evil. Western views of reality stemming from the ancient Greek philosophers generally believe that the physical world and work in it are also something like a necessary evil. So for instance, Plato in the Republic, he said that an ideal society would be one in which there were three classes of people, rulers, warriors, and producers, So which would you want to be? (laughs) Um, The more sophisticated you are, the smarter you are, the the further removed you are from manual labor, from, from doing things with your hands. Many perspectives on life and work say that life is essentially a struggle. And you've got to do all that you can just to kind of get to the top and then those who make it to the top of the heap get to live a life of luxury, uh, distant, remote from work. The Bible, on the other hand, says that God himself works. That's amazing. He creates all that exists, calling it into being. He says over and over again in the creation account, it is good, it is good, it is good. The dirt that he has created, the land, the sea, the animals, the plants are good. Many scholars commenting on Genesis 1 and 2 like to say that it it portrays a picture here of God with his hands in the dirt, with the soil under his fingernails. And then at the pinnacle of creation, and we talked about this last week, God creates human beings in his image, reflecting and representing who he is, his nature and his character. And having created human beings, he says this, chapter 1, verse 28, and God blessed them, And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it, have dominion over the fish of the sea and the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And then in chapter two, verse eight, and the Lord God planted a garden in the east and there he put the man whom he had formed. Verse 15, the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. You were created to work. We were created as reflections of God's nature, of his character for work. We were created as an image of God, but we were created for good work. It's worth pointing out that all of this happens in Genesis 1 and 2 
before what is called or referred to as the fall of the human race. And I'm going to talk more and frame that for us in a couple of weeks. But in the um, kind of big picture, the story of Scripture has essentially four chapters. Creation, where everything is good. Fall, where everything goes wrong. Redemption, where God works to make all things right. And glorification, where finally the work of redemption will be complete. Work happens not as a result of the fall, not in chapter 2 where everything goes wrong, but work begins in the goodness of paradise. In the original goodness of creation, God works and he makes us to work. God fills the world and we see here uh, in creation, we see food and song and beauty. And then God says to human beings, do what you see me doing. Fill the earth, subdue it, have dominion, which does not mean domination, but then this continues throughout the rest of the scripture to the point where we see when Jesus comes, uh, he comes not as a ruler, not as a wealthy uh, person who is far removed from work, who has servants to do menial tasks for him, but he comes rather as a carpenter. He comes as someone who has you know, calloused hands. It comes as somebody who works. And what all this is telling us is that God dignifies all good work. And God dignifies all good work, not just like the physical or the spiritual, uh, sorry, not just the spiritual, but also the physical work. And then it says that God rests. And we're going to talk more about this next week because in many ways, uh, the Sabbath rest of God on the seventh day is the, the climax of creation, but it's important to notice here that the creator God works, and yet he is also distinct from his work. He works, but he's able to stop working. He still has an existence apart from his work. And so we who bear his image, we are created also to do good work, yes, and yet we have to have also the ability to stop working, to separate ourselves from our work. If we think about it, there are really two mistaken approaches to work in our world. And I think most of us are kind of flip-flopping between one and the other. And the first is an over-identification with our work. It's this tendency to think, I am what I do. You know, when you meet somebody for the first time, often as you're getting to know one another, you ask a question that says a lot, doesn't it? When you ask somebody, what do you do? And what you're doing is you're asking somebody, who are you? But, but we pose the question, what do you do? And typically, you know, we understand the response is, you tell somebody about your job. Is that who you are? I actually met somebody on Friday for the first time, and I said, so who are you? And he told me about his family. It was, like, so refreshing. I've never experienced that before. We're asking uh, who you are, but we tend to answer with regard to our work, which leads to all kinds of problems. Uh, What does that mean about your identity when your work is frustrating? Or when you lose your job unexpectedly. What does that mean about who you are when you retire? Um, That's the first mistake, over-identification with our work. The second mistake that we make is that we view work as only uh, a means to an end. And, um, you know, this is the, like, everybody's working for the weekend kind of idea. Uh, I work to make money. 
And so I, you know, I put in time, I punch the clock um, to earn a living so that I can do the things that I really want to do. And uh, you, you see this embodied in this advice that you've probably heard at some point. Um, like if you go to a grad school, or not a grad school, like a job fair, like at college or high school or something like that, and somebody will inev- invariably tell you, um, if you do what you love, then you will never, what? Work in a day. A work, yeah, work a day of your life. That is terrible advice. <laughs> <laughs> Um, first of all, because no, like, where is the person who has experienced their work in that way? We talk about this theoretical person, and then people get jobs that they think they're going to love, and, you know, it's work. (laughs) I love my job, but it is often frustrating, and I know that you know that that is the case, too. But more than that, it implies that work is a necessary evil. It's a means to an end. It's a way to make money so that you can then go off and do what you really want to do. But Genesis shows us that the the work itself has dignity. We were created for work. Our work has value because as we work, we reflect the image of the God who works. So work has dignity. But secondly, we see embedded in this passage... Um, before this goes any further, can somebody open a couple of doors? I, I, people are fanning, and it's only going to get <laughs> hotter, I think. Um, okay, thank you. So embedded in this passage, the Bible tells us a couple of things, three things about how to work. Yes, our work has dignity. Yes, our work has value. But how, do that, how does that actually help us? How do we approach work? And there are three guidelines here, and... Um, if we understand them and we follow them, they will help us find significance and joy and satisfaction in our work, but they will also help us to think about how do we approach uh, our work in less than ideal circumstances. And uh, I'll say these, this, these are relevant whether you're thinking about work in terms of like a job, a role that you have where you get paid, uh, or if you think about your work in a more general sense, uh, I'm aware of the, the reality that many in our congregation are retired. Um, many of us are uh, homemakers and maybe don't punch a clock or cash a paycheck. Does that mean that our work is not valuable? Absolutely not. But three guidelines here, and I'm in some ways summarizing what Tim Keller writes in his book, Every Good Endeavor. Um, But the three principles embedded here are essentially this. To find out how you work best, you need to look inward, look outward, and look upward. So look inward. Uh, What are you gifted to do? Who has God created you uniquely to be? Genesis 1.26, let us make man in our image and let them rule. What does that mean? Well, we are made in the image of a God who is a creator, and so we were created to create, to bring things into existence that did not exist before. Now, that doesn't mean that we're all going to be inventors or artists, but when the Bible um, describes God's work in creation, the Hebrew verb that's used, uh, that means create, the word bara, is only ever used of God in the Bible. And so it's talking about the uniqueness of God's work in creating, that God creates out of nothing, and we don't create in that sense. But there are many words 
um, that do apply to us, that also apply to the work that God does to form, to make, to shape, to order, to separate, to distinguish, to steward. So what we're seeing is that God makes and the Spirit, um, uh, God calls everything into being, uh, creates the kind of primordial stuff of creation. And then at the beginning of Genesis 1, it talks about the Spirit of God hovering over the face of the waters and bringing order out of chaos. We see God uh, drawing the potential out of creation. And that's exactly what we are called to do to bring order out of chaos and to bring out the potential of the latent stuff of creation. And all good work is about a human being discovering what they're good at and then doing that very thing. So think about this. If you're an entrepreneur, you're taking an idea or you're taking disparate elements that don't go together and bringing them together and you're making something that wasn't there before imaging the Spirit of God at work. Or maybe you're a counselor. What are you doing in your, in your interaction with your clients? You're developing, um, you're, you're, you're helping a client whose life uh, perhaps has become chaotic to order their understanding of their world. Or you're a teacher and you're developing the latent potential of your students. Or you work in real estate and you're helping your clients to find the raw material of property. Why? Not just so that they can make money, but so that they can establish a business or shelter and grow a family. What's the phrase that's always used in real estate? The highest and best use of the property. It's getting at this idea of latent potential that is being brought to, to bear, to, to fruition. Or you're an administrator and you're helping an organization run with effectiveness and efficiency, eliminating waste. What are you doing? In all of these cases and more, you're not just filling up time. You know, you're not just putting things on your calendar. You're not just earning money or punching a clock. You are mirroring your creator. I was thinking... Uh, so I was working on this about uh, Cal Stevens, who I was going to ask him if this was okay, and then he wasn't here this morning, so I'm just going to go ahead. Um, <laughs> but Cal Stevens has, um, uh, a couple weeks ago, led kind of a planning day for, for some of us at our church as we're seeking to just clarify who has God called us to be, and we're talking about uh, the importance of, uh, of, of understanding who we are as a church and a purpose statement and a core values. And I remember Cal uh, sharing with us his sense of purpose. And I wish I had written down what, what he said, but, but essentially what Cal said is that, that I, I sense that God has uniquely gifted me to be able to draw people out. And to develop the potential that is latent in people. And to help uh, them clarify who they are. To help them realize their potential. And then he said this. He said, I did that for many years working in ministry. And then I did that for many years working in human resources for a tech corporation. And then I did that for several years as a professor at Cal Poly. And he keeps retiring from each of these jobs. But he's still doing that same work. Um, Now he's helping our church do that. He's consulting with others. So how do we work? We have to look in. 
What are the ways that you can uniquely bring order and develop potential? Or think about it like this. Why does it feel so satisfying to finish a job well done? It's not because you get a paycheck for it. It's because it's within you. You've got to figure out who you are, who God has created you to be, and then you've got to work. Uh, just to highlight that, think about <laughs> this. I think this is a hilarious reality. Did you know that 70% of people who win the lottery go bankrupt? All of us are confident that we could beat the odds on that, right? <laughs> But statistically, if all of us won the lottery, 70% of us would go bankrupt. Um, Why is that? They get depressed, they they get divorced, they die sooner. Why? Because we were made to work. And if you suddenly had this injection of cash that made work superfluous, slowly your sense of humanity begins to choke you. And there begins to be this deep sense of disorientation. We've got to discover our strengths. We've got to work. We've got to look within ourselves. But secondly, we also have to look, okay, everybody under the age of 45 loves what I just said, right? And everybody older is like, ah, the pastor's going a little bit, you know, millennial on us. Okay, so let's look at the other side here. No offense to the millennials in the room, of which I am not one. Oh, man, I just got myself in trouble there. Okay, moving right along. Secondly, look out. Look outward. What does the world need? Genesis 2.15, the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and to keep it or to care for it, to steward it, not to say, squeeze as much as you can out of this. Make as much as you can and move on. Do you realize that everything you have, everything that you own, everything that you are, everything that you can do is a gift that has been given to you? That's a staggering statement. It's not an over-exaggeration. Modern individualistic Americans, we don't tend to think like that. We think... You know, I have what I have because I worked hard. Nobody handed me anything. I went to school. I discovered what I was good at. I put it to use. I've made money. Shouldn't I get to enjoy that? Well, sure, but think about this reality. If you had been born on the side of a mountain in Tibet in the 4th century, none of those things you're good at would matter at all. And so the thing that you're able to do uniquely uh, and to profit from it is a gift because of the place that you were born, because of the family that you were born into, because you were born in a place that valued education in order to set up a system that would allow you to develop your potential. And you are a steward of those gifts. What that means for for each of us is that everything we have, everything that we are, we are stewards of what has been given to us. And so we have to look at our world and we've got to see uh, not just what have I been created to do, but what what does the world around me need? What do I have to offer? How is my work, in a sense, a ministry to others? Thirdly, look up. Look to the one who's called you. It's worth saying this, that we have to do all three of these together. We have to understand who we are. We have to understand how our work is of use to the world. But we also have to look to the one who has called us to this work. And if we don't do all three, 
we will find ourselves regularly disoriented in our jobs. I mean, can you imagine the experience of, of so many? Maybe you've had this experience um, in life where you've worked for you know, decades and you've thought, I'm going to put in all of this hard work all to get to this place. And you finally get to the place where you've worked your way up and you now have the job that you know would be a great fit for you and it's worthwhile work and then you're doing it and you say, now that I'm here, it feels empty. Why? You have to have a sense of mission in your work. A sense that what you're doing in this world has divine significance. Um, John Coltrane was a um, uh, jazz saxophonist. One of the most gifted, influential, uh, innovative musicians of the 20th century. He's also an incredibly... um, uh, tortured soul, perhaps, uh, lived, uh, despite his enormous talent, had a very rough life, struggled with addiction. But he, he writes that in 1957, after surviving a drug overdose, um, that he had an experience of the love and the grace of God. Now, Christians always want to look at that and say he met Jesus, and I think he probably did, but I don't want to say that definitively because I don't know. But he describes that experience. Um, Well, he went on to write uh, one of the most famous jazz albums of all time, A Love Supreme, which is uh, this overflowing um, statement of his love for God. And in the liner notes to A Love Supreme, he writes this. He says, During the year 1957, I experienced by the grace of God a spiritual awakening, which was to lead me to a richer, fuller, and more productive life. At that time, in gratitude, I humbly asked to be given the means and privilege to make others happy through music. I feel this has been, grant, been granted through his grace. All praise to God. This album is a humble offering to him, an attempt to say thank you, God, through our work, even as we do on our hearts and with our tongues. May he help and strengthen all men in every good endeavor. One evening... Um, Coltrane performed that uh, album, A Love Supreme, live several times. But there was one time in particular where as he was performing A Love Supreme, he had the sense that this was the greatest thing he had ever done. And he finished that performance. He walked off stage and set his saxophone down. And he was heard to say by people who were gathering around, Nunc Dimittis. Now, um, nunc dimittis may not mean anything to you unless you went to Catholic school, but nunc dimittis is a Latin phrase that says, um, and now depart, or now let depart. It's the first two words in Latin of the prayer of Simeon that's recorded in Luke chapter 2. And uh, Simeon was this old man who had been Uh, told by God that he would live to see the Messiah. And when Jesus, as a baby, is presented at the temple, Simeon sees um, the baby Jesus, and he says there, nunc dimittis. In Luke, it's recorded like this. Lord now, let you, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation, 
that you have prepared in the presence of all people a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for your glory to the people of Israel. Why did Coltrane said that? He said, I've done what I came to do. I have performed this to the best of my ability. I have reached uh, as close to perfection as I am capable of doing in this work, in, in this life, and in my work, and now I am done. My work is done. When Coltrane experienced the love of God, he stopped making music for himself or for the sake of music, or as a job, and he says in the liner notes that he began making music as an act of worship towards God. And that's the reason that he could then, at some point in his life, say, I have done this as well as I am capable of doing, and so I'm done. You see how those three areas have to come together. Look inward, look outward, look upward. Now you might say, that's really nice, sounds great, That doesn't describe my job at all. Or I would love a job like that. Or I love my job, but most of the time it drives me nuts. Or, you know, whatever version of that you can experience. Um, But what we have to understand is that Genesis 1 and 2 uh, describe our world and our work as God intended them. In the original goodness of creation, We have to understand this as foundational to our origin story, but we're not living uh, in these conditions now. Sin enters into the world. Our work becomes disordered. Our work becomes a means of our own dehumanization. And so rather than working as stewards of God's created gifts, we become those who exploit his creation and exploit others. Rather than seeing work as full of purpose and yet distinct from us, some of us idolize our work while others run from it. Some of us look to work to save us. Some of us look for salvation from our work. In fact, apart from God, this confusion, I think, is unavoidable. Stephen Jay Gould was a uh, notable paleontologist and an atheist, and he once wrote these words. He says, we are here because one odd group of fishes had a peculiar fin anatomy that could transform into legs for terrestrial creatures. (laughs) That's why human beings are here. Because the earth never froze entirely during the Ice Age. Because a small and tenuous species arising in Africa a quarter of a million years ago has managed so far to survive by hook and crook, we may yearn for a higher answer, but none exists. This explanation, though superficially troubling, if not terrifying, is ultimately liberating and exhilarating. We cannot read the meaning of life passively in the facts of nature. We must construct these answers for ourselves. That is the inevitable outcome of any view of the world that does not begin with Genesis's view of work. We must create, we must construct meaning for ourselves. Well, how are we going to do that? We're going to try to create meaning through what we do. And that's why we need to see the third reality about work in the Bible, and that is that God redeems our work. God creates us to work, he dignifies our work, but our work becomes dehumanizing, and then we look to our work to save us, which it will never do, and so God comes in the flesh in Jesus Christ to redeem our work. Most of what we know about the life of Jesus from the Bible really only covers the final three years of his life. 
And what that means is that Jesus, we know that Jesus' earthly father Joseph was a carpenter. And we know that growing up in that context and culture that Jesus would have been apprenticed by his father into that trade. And so we know that before we really begin to read about the life of the ministry of Jesus, what he was spending his time doing was working with his um, earthly father, Joseph, in a carpentry business, um, working with his hands, um, running the family business, When he begins his public ministry, the first thing that Jesus does is he goes to the River Jordan to be baptized by John the Baptist. And it says that as he comes up out of the water, the heavens open and the audible voice of God the Father says, this is my beloved son. This is my son who I love. Now, you have to ask yourself this. What did God the Father love about Jesus at that point? All he had really done is make some tables. Some really good tables. He hadn't taught anybody. He hadn't done any miracles. He hadn't taken on the Pharisees. All he had done was build things with his hands. Throughout his ministry, Jesus dignifies human work, taking on human work, but also in his teaching, he regularly uses examples and illustrations from the world of agriculture because he's speaking to people who work in that world. Finally, he goes to the cross, and on the cross, he takes upon himself our sin. The consequences that we have earned for every misuse of our own work. And he does so bearing the guilt of all of our failure in his body. As he hangs on the cross, he exchanges places with us, giving us in exchange his perfect record of work. What he has done perfectly. And then what does he say finally on the cross? My God, my God, into your hands I commend my spirit. And then he finally breathes out, it is finished. Which is a staggering statement. The work I have come to do is finished. He has accomplished all that he came to do. He has fought the forces of evil and won. He has paid the price that we owe It is finished. In Hebrews 12, the author of Hebrews says, but when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. He sat down. He was at rest because the work is over. He comes in the flesh as God in the flesh, dignifying our work by modeling it. He goes to the cross, paying the penalty for our sin, giving us his record of perfect work and having accomplished all that he has come to do for the glory of God. He sits down because his work was done. How do we respond to that? I think first we have to say, hallelujah. Thank you, Jesus. But secondly, what that means for us is this. Your work has been redeemed and transformed. Christ's work God's work in Christ does not merely set us free for sin, from sin and, and its penalty, though it does that. It actually transforms our work by the power of his resurrection. You know, we, we sang a few minutes ago, I guess this is the first time we've sung this, at Trinity, your labor is not in vain. And I don't know if you wondered where those words came from, uh, but it's not from a Hallmark card. 
those words are found at the end of 1 Corinthians 15. 1 Corinthians 15 is a long chapter of the Bible where Paul is extolling the wonder and the mystery and the beauty and the efficacy of Jesus' resurrection. And the final words of the chapter are these. This is the first implication of Jesus' resurrection. Therefore, my beloved, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Your labor is not in vain. Your struggle to teach the unteachable because of Jesus' work and his resurrection is not in vain. Your frustration in bringing order out of what feels like an attempt to herd cats is not going to end in frustration. Your nagging sense that no matter how you work, it will never be perfect is not the final word because the Lord himself is at work. He's redeeming our souls, yes, but he is also redeeming our work. Your labor is not in vain. That's what you need to keep going. That's what you need to thrive, no matter what your um, current role. That's what you need if you are retired and you're saying, my work is done, what do I do now? Well, let me finish with this, because I think it applies to those of us who are retired, but it's an encouragement to all of us. I was thinking um, about Tim Keller. His memorial service was this week. If you don't know, Tim Keller was a pastor and author in New York City, one of my heroes who died and the hero of many people who passed away in May. His memorial service was this week. And um, one of the things that struck me about when Tim passed away is, you know, there were obituaries, uh, eulogies written in the New York Times and Washington Post and all of these places. But the thing that has stood out, I think, is, is the extent to which people have said, not just he was a brilliant mind, he was an a, a accomplished apologist, he had written you know, a number of books, but he was a kind and generous encourager. And um, about a year ago, Ashley and I were on a Zoom call with a group of people that Tim was talking with. And... Um, one of the things that struck me is in this Zoom call, there's, I don't know, maybe a dozen of us there, and he said to kind of young Christians, he said, my work is done. Unless I live long enough to, read, to write another book, there's nothing more that I'm going to really accomplish. The, the work that I have been given to do is done. Now it's my role to encourage you. Your labor is not in vain. Be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. What he came to do, he accomplished what he came to do. And then he sat down and said, it is finished. Because of that, your labor is not in vain. Would you pray with me? Oh God, we thank you for uh, your work, your work. You know exactly what we need. And what we need is exactly what you have done. And so we pray, God, that we would find meaning and purpose and significance in the sort of work that you have called each of us to. That we would find um, uh, hope uh, 
in the fact that you have dignified our work by what you have done. And that in the moments of frustration that we would look to you, uh, knowing that because you have risen from the dead, Jesus, the labor that we, uh, in which we toil will not ultimately end in frustration. Would we live with such hope that we would be encouragers to all around us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.